The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Do you ever wake up and think to yourself, you've got a team of doctors or scientists or engineers or some other highly trained people, and you think, how does a business person like me best lead a team of technical people? To answer that question, Jim Joyce. Jim, welcome to the show. Joel, it's a pleasure to be on today. This this is a big problem for uh, for business leaders is to to, to um, try to figure out how to take uh, highly trained people and get them to do new things or old things or whatever the things are. And and you run a medical company, and, and you know, so you're dealing with medical people. And just for clarification, you're not a doctor, scientist, or one of those, right? No, I'm not. I, I am an inventor, though. You're an inventor. Okay. An inventor. Uh, I think, I think a lot of us entrepreneurial people are inventors in a certain way. We're all, uh, you know, Renaissance people like that. But uh, so, so how do you manage scientists and people that, that maybe bring your inventions to life? You come up with an idea, but they actually have to bring it to life. How does that happen? Well, it, it can be very challenging, Joel. Uh, first off, you have to have your team, and we look at all the participants at all levels related to the science as being members of the team, but but you need to have the competence and the trust of, of those team members, and uh, they need to know that that your understanding uh, is quite you know in depth on issues that are that can be immensely complex, and as we as we talk about um, issues that are scientifically driven. Uh, such as therapeutics, uh, there's just in many cases uh, a theme that resonates with team members is understanding that uh, there's a lot that we don't know, and finding those answers together are, is really, really a critical part of our business. You know, I've I've dealt with a lot of scientists and uh, these kinds of people uh, through my career, and uh, I was recently actually addressing an audience of engineers, and I was talking about a concept. And somebody raises their hand and said, that's impossible. How do you deal with that's impossible? Like, well, like that's got to come up once in a while, you know, where, where you have some crazy idea about how to solve a problem and they go, can't do it. Yeah. It's, uh, you, you know, sometimes, if, you know, my experience has been, you better produce the data. Uh, it's easy to think about things, but to execute on something, to where you actually can start demonstrating the data. I mean, we historically 
Uh, I have been involved in the development of devices that previously didn't exist and perform functions that people didn't think could uh, could work uh, in human treatments, but but did. Uh, so yeah, it's a. Uh, I mean, so if if a scientist, if you're sitting around the board table and you're brainstorming ideas and you come up with some uh, some idea, whatever the idea is, and the the group says it's impossible. Is there a way to get them past it's impossible? Uh, Again, it is just it's just a matter of executing on the vision and making sure that vision there's a clarity to the vision. Some of the things we do today. Uh, just a few years ago, people thought it wasn't possible to address multiple components of this of a disease condition simultaneously. Uh, you know, sometimes if you're on the cutting edge, you know, a lot of people uh, are dismissive until you demonstrate that you can advance something that. that well, that, that's, so that's what I'm out. saying. So I, I find personally that sometimes the most dismissive people are the technical people because they think can't be done. And then they move on to the next thing. But it's the entrepreneurs, the inventors, the people who are on the more creative side that say, we have to find a new way. We got to figure something out. We got to do something different because how many things are there in our world that 50 years ago, everybody thought was impossible? Well, and and you go 50 years forward and we'll look back and think about how naive there you you go. And a lot of things Uh, that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, working with really highly intelligent researchers, scientists, you know, it's, it, it can be a real pleasure and, it, and it's constantly an educational process. But what I found is a lot of times the education is so um, advanced within a certain silo of information. And, and what, what we've really discovered over time is that, you know, there are people that are, you know, the kings of intelligence in their silo. But there's a lot of different silos that are out there, and you need so, to so, so that so that see what's going on in all of these different silos and how these things connect. So that begs another question: Is how do you get people to get out of their silo and kind of cooperate with everybody else, especially if the company starts getting a little bigger? When it's small, you can all kind of sit together, but when it gets bigger, how do you how do you navigate that problem? Because that's that's something that really weighs, especially big companies, down. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you can't navigate it. I mean, sometimes, unfortunately, you know, if it may not be possible to get somebody on board, uh, they may not, they just might not see the vision. Uh, and it's not just a technical vision. It's kind of this marriage of, of the scientific technical aspects of something uh, being converged with the regulatory realities of advancing that technology. So there's kind of a, oftentimes the resistance occurs when you're going to hand off a technology into a situation where it's now moving forward under a regulatory environment. And so, you know, trying to get something that works and fits within the regulatory environment uh, can be a challenge in, in getting people to, to can kind of move in both areas is can sometimes be challenging. So let's, let's talk about your business. What at the 30,000 foot level and maybe even a higher level than that, because I won't be able to understand it. Uh, what, what, what does your company do? What's the main purpose of this uh, medical technology? Yeah, we, we treat life threatening inflammatory conditions. And essentially if you look at viral infections, bacterial infections, 
a majority of people that die from severe infections uh, die from what's known as the cytokine storm. It's an overreaction of the immune system to infection, and it leads to organ failure, can cause multiple multiple organ failure, in fact, and lead to death. Um, what we do is we create blood purification systems that can remove the pathogen source of inflammation from the circulatory system, and then also simultaneously eliminate the pro-inflammatory cytokines that are causing this adverse immune event. Uh, so this is something that uh, can address, you know, some significant unmet needs in global health. Uh, these inflammatory conditions uh, oftentimes uh, lead to sepsis, septic shock, which is the number one cause of in-hospital deaths. But, but we focus on conditions that aren't well addressed uh, with drug therapies, uh, such as community-acquired pneumonia, which is globally the number one cause of death in infectious disease and, and kills is a leading cause of death in, in children under five years old as well. So is your, does your company, is it a pharmaceutical? Or does it produce a pharmaceutical product or what, what, or is it like a machine or what, what, what do you produce? Yeah, it's, we're a medical device company and we produce a, a blood purification device. It looks very much like a hemodialysis cartridge used to treat patients with kidney failure. But these devices, they fit on the global infrastructure of dialysis machines, CRRT machines already located in hospitals and clinics worldwide. And we obtain access to the circulatory system of the patients and our device on a rapid real-time basis eliminates the pathogen sources of inflammation that can cause sepsis and septic shock, as well as eliminates the inflammatory cytokines that, that underlie the cytokine storm that, that really is what precipitates uh, these conditions to be very life-threatening. So, so just for clarification, so at the hospital, you go on like an IV, they take the blood out, put it through the machine, and it comes back in better than it was before. Yeah, we're, we're actually obtaining access to a patient's circulatory system, and their entire circulatory system is passing through our cartridge about once every 15 minutes. And every time that, every time their circulatory system passes through the cartridge, we're reducing the circulating presence of the pathogen, whether it's a viral pathogen or a bacterial toxin in combination with eliminating uh, inflammatory cytokines. So uh, once they're about every 15 minutes, I mean, is it, is it taking it out of like a big artery or like, like where, do, where do they plug in? Yeah, it's a central, it's a central venous catheter put right here uh, next to your neck, uh, something that's very commonly installed. And, and in many of these patients, when they're severely infected, they also have these central venous catheter in place because they might also uh, be connected to a dialysis machine related to acute kidney failure or some, some other organs that are, that are failing at the time. All right. So, uh, so fascinating. Uh, and, I, and I hope this sort of thing uh, becomes more available because it will help a lot of people. But what, so what's the business model here? How, how do you make money or, you know, when, when is that going to start to happen? Yeah, so we're, we're what, uh, Joel, you would call a clinical progression model. And, and our goal near term is to move into human studies. We're getting ready to submit what's called an investigational device exemption uh, to the FDA, which will include all of our previous uh, laboratory studies, research studies, uh, animal studies demonstrating safety 
and that the, the device is well tolerated. But from the business standpoint, we develop a pathway that's kind of modular in nature. As a device, we go through CDRH, which is the medical device division of FDA, and we conduct what's called a feasibility study in human studies, which is essentially a safety study in 10 to 12 subjects. And then from there, we bridge into pivotal studies. And, and so these pivotal studies are the equivalent of like a phase three drug study. But instead of bridging into one pivotal study, for example, instead of bridging into something maybe related to a life-threatening viral infection or you know, a life-threatening bacterial infection, we plan to bridge into multiple indications. So from a clinical progression standpoint, uh, we have the ability to leverage one safety study, a feasibility study, into multiple indications that represent significant unmet needs in global health. And so from there, leveraging that, uh, those capabilities uh, is something that traditionally in therapeutics is a, is a very significant value driver uh, if you can address one significant uh, market indication in our cases we have multiple shots on goal in terms of different indications with our one product. Is this, is this the sort of thing that uh, you're going to intend to take to market and, and manufacture, or is this like a build to sell or build a license or how does that work? No, this is, is something that we'll, we will take to market. Um, but we also recognize that if you can demonstrate effectiveness in treating people that are uh, suffering from life-threatening conditions that aren't, uh, well addressed with with other therapies that that's of significant value to other organizations as well. So does that mean you have to build out a sales force or or how does that all happen? No, that's that's not our that's not our area of expertise. We'll, we'll leverage uh, distribution channels that already exist in the critical care market in the hospital distribution market uh, throughout dialysis. Uh, organizations uh, that have clinics around the world. So who's, who's going to do the selling though? Uh, the patients, uh, <laughs> the patients, uh, the patient requirement uh, creates a demand. Well, but, but somebody has to advise the hospitals, the dialysis facilities, whoever these are, that, that this equipment is available to them. So how does that, how does that process happen? Yeah, generally, at the time you receive market approval for treating an indication that was previously not well addressed or addressed at all, uh, generally, the, the awareness is there for your, your technology. Um, but you do maybe need, through, need to rely through, publica- on, through, through like yeah, publications. Yes, through publications, through media. Uh, generally, the awareness is, is really quite good uh, that your technology exists. Uh, and then there's a market uh, that also exists related to what we're doing in the biodefense field, where you have a mechanism. You can't predict, you know, what the next pathogen uh, is going to be that's going to emerge. So you need to have um, a device or a therapeutic that is kind of agnostic in, in nature, where it, it can address the pathogen threat, whether it's a viral threat, a bacterial toxin threat. Uh, in combination with with modulating down inflammatory cytokines, and, and this is this is a significant market opportunity for us as well. All right, so uh, 
So you're, you're working on the machine. You got to go through all these steps. It takes a long time before the, uh, the FDA or whatever that, that other agency takes a look at your uh, materials. Um, are you a, uh, a zero revenue company until you get the green light or is there a way for you to make money even before you can start selling these machines? Yeah, no, this is a, um, generally the, the sole source of revenue prior to approval, and this is based on my, my past background, is you know, can be augmented uh, by government contracts. Uh, and previously, I mean, I've had success navigating through Department of Defense and, and winning multiple um, government contracts. But yeah, we're not a revenue generating business you know, in terms of selling a product until the product's available to be sold. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up this government contract thing. So, um, so even though you're not generating revenue from the product, the value of the research and things that you're doing has more than one use. It's not just good for you. It's good for other people. So are you selling that research? Are you getting ready to start driving revenue through other mechanisms? No, not, not at this point in time, but I do anticipate that uh, once we have our human study up and going, that there will be government programs uh, that will that will pursue uh, related to the use of our technology in biodefense, and and this is an area where we've had some really good success previously. Interesting, interesting. So, um, so you're so right now you're a uh, a zero revenue company, but you're public. How long? About, tell us about that. How long have you been public? And let's talk about why you're public if you're a zero revenue company. Sure, Joel. Um, first off, uh, clinical progression with therapeutic products can can have immense valuations uh, put on put on those therapies as you demonstrate your product is working in clinical studies, uh, and especially if you're navigating towards market opportunities that uh, that are not uh, truly met. Uh, in, in the marketplace. Uh, the, the rationale for being public is basically, if you look at the history of blood purification therapeutics, it's a very limited marketplace. Uh, there's not a long history in this, in this area, except with devices like dialysis cartridges. So traditional pathways like VCs, there's not, uh, there's not a demand, it's not a defined product segment uh, with the venture capital community and some of your more traditional sources of early stage funding. So historically, we found that the public markets uh, are you know, much more accommodating for these types of therapeutics, especially if you're looking to do something innovative. And, and you know, we've done this before in the public markets with success. And, and we established ourselves as a public company through a merger in October of last year, but we've really been in somewhat stealth mode because we have conducted a series of six different uh, studies uh, since that event uh, to demonstrate the capability of our device. Uh, we've scaled up the ability to manufacture the product and, and now demonstrating in animal studies that it's safe and now leveraging that in, into the human studies uh, where in the public markets uh, value as you, as you advance your product can be, can be quite uh, significant. So the, so the public markets gave you access to capital that you couldn't really get otherwise. You weren't able to get it through the VCs. You weren't able to get it through other kinds of private equity. So the public markets were better. Do you know what kind of offering you did? Was it a Reg A plus? Was this some other kind of offering? Do you know? Oh, we just did. We did a merger. I funded the company 
with industry colleagues, individuals from the industry that, that have known me for a number of years and some institutional investors that uh, have previously uh, invested in my endeavors. Uh, and, and, you know, we'll, we currently uh, trade on the over-the-counter bulletin board. Uh, so we're in the kind of in the minor leagues right now, but we're anticipating doing a financing uh, towards the end of January that would allow us to uplist the NASDAQ. So this, so this is a reverse merger then, right? That, was, is that what it is? You bought a shell and you, you merge into a shell? Well, it was a it was an operating entity, so it wasn't a, a shell corporation. Corporation, we we did not want to end up doing a transaction with a shell corporation because that could be prohibitive long term for uh, uplisting and, and things of that nature. But it was a it was a, a merger where control was issued uh, to us with a previously operating company, and we transitioned that operating company's business towards our endeavors. You know, one of the things that I always wonder about uh, taking a company public very early like yours, because it, it's it, it's still very early because you're still, you know, working on your your baseline stuff, is they extract, it, it's very expensive. They extract a lot of the equity from the company, you know, and it makes it difficult for the early shareholders to hold on to very much. Uh, did that happen to you? I mean, I mean, I guess you must have looked at a lot of different alternatives because it seems to me like private placements and things allow you to hold on to more longer, but you know, but it, you can only do what you can do. So. Yeah, you, you better have a good understanding of the public markets. And, and I think, um, you know, that's not always, uh, you know, people sometimes go public out of a, uh, you know, a sense of urgency or panicking about needing to get capital. Uh, that's not a rationale to go, to go public. Uh, and in our case, you know, we went public because long term we wanted to be in the public markets and we had a very good idea of how the markets might value what we're doing. We came into this having a what you would call a market comparable, uh, a device that was a device company that was already in the marketplace whose value uh, was predicated upon one blood purification product uh, that performs one function uh of our mechanisms, we, we perform multiple mechanisms, but we knew that as we progress this, we'd be able to kind of lean on our market comparable where people could see the value, you know, you'd see, well, this is being valued at 300 million. Uh, and so perhaps Segan therapy uh, can drive that, that similar type of value if the company can clinically execute. What's the time horizon on this kind of an investment? Yeah, so the time horizon, uh, if you think about clinical progression models and our ability to move through a safety study in humans, which is a, in devices, it's only a 10 to 12 subject study historically for these types of devices. And if you can pivot off of that study into, into uh, efficacy studies for approval, again, it's a safety study, then a pivotal study and a disease indication uh, to receive market clearance if you can demonstrate efficacy. And if you can move into multiple indications in your pivotal studies, that, that is, we believe, uh, an immense value driver uh, for the technology, you know, even prior to product approval. So you only need a, a dozen people, test subjects to uh, get clearance on this or, or that's just the preliminary no, that's, thing? That, that's, Joel, that, Joel, that's the safety study. 
uh, in humans. And then from there, pivotal studies, depending on the indication historically through CDRH at FDA, can range from 60 patients to more than 300 patients, of which usually 50% of those patients are, are control subjects. It's, it's a fascinating thing. It's um, a lot of us don't deal with these regulatory agencies. You know, we're not under their, their thumb. I mean, there's some advantages because once you, once you have a regulated product approved, then you've got uh, kind of a license to print, you know, print your money. So uh, there, there's pros and cons hard to get over the fence, but once you're inside the fence, it's a pro- probably a pretty good place to be. Well, it, it can be, but, but you, you need to really have an in-depth understanding of, of what's, uh, transpired with those that have gone before you, you know, so it's very important that we keep a very close eye on other companies navigating through FDA. Uh, there are changes that you need to be cognizant of. FDA always has new guidance on something, you know, here or there related to how you uh, advance your product. One of the things that came out that was great for us during COVID-19 was FDA's position that devices could reduce inflammatory cytokines. They called reduction of inflammatory cytokines or the cytokine storm as being defined as something that would be clinically beneficial, whereas beforehand uh, that was more of an observational uh, um, term. It wasn't necessarily a clinical endpoint. And so you follow these things. It's now that's now a clinical endpoint. And so you adapt uh, your programs and your clinical strategies to, you know, what's going, you know, what you're seeing emerge and change at FDA on a regular basis. So ultimately, uh, where's the money for you guys? Is it in the exit or is it is it in uh, the cash flow? And how do you you sell the machines for a certain price and people pay them or, you know, what happens? You know, we we have to go about uh, our business. You know, being get our product approved, move it through distribution into the marketplace. That that's our plan. But we also recognize the indications that we're addressing are some of the most significant unmet needs in global health. Uh, and if we can demonstrate utility in these areas, uh, it would also seem to be feasible that that would be of, of tremendous value. Uh, to other organizations. So for example, uh, you, you build this machine that has a certain blood filter. Is it possible to change the filter and then start filtering something else like, uh, you know, filter it for a different kind of bad cell or some other kind of problem? It can constantly be adapted. It, it is certainly a platform, but we, you know, our lead product uh, can address without any modifications, a multitude of different indications. But perhaps a different way to look at this is, let's say there's a disease condition uh, that's being advanced or an indi- a, a therapeutic is being advanced against a disease indication by a drug company. And the clinical outcomes are you know, so-so. Uh, but when you combine a device that can play nicely without drugs, without adding any drug toxicity, but can also assist in augmenting what the drug's trying to achieve, uh, you could potentially improve the benefit of of that drug. So I I bring that up because there's obvious players uh, in the device industry that would be attracted to what we're doing. 
but people sometimes don't recognize that this type of device mechanism of action could also be very important to uh, drug companies. How, how often do companies like yours actually cross the finish line uh, themselves or do they usually get bought before that ever happens? Yeah, it's um, it's the the number of companies with from a device perspective, devices get approved uh, on a much more regular basis than drugs. But it's still uh, it, it's still, uh, you know, an occasional event. It's not happening on a regular basis. And and sometimes the devices, uh, you know, that are kind of related to what we're doing when they have been acquired, um, the larger company never really you know, regardless of what they paid, they never really put a big emphasis uh, in marketing behind them after the fact. Oh, you think they, they buy them to squash them? Um, I, I wouldn't, I, 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 I wouldn't say, I, I know for certain that's not the case in all cases. Um, I, I just think sometimes companies acquire things and then they move in a different direction and at some point in time. And that doesn't, you know, move along with them. Yeah. Uh, some, sometimes it's deliberate and sometimes it's not deliberate. I, I, I get what you're saying, but it makes sense to me that, uh, you know, a large company, if they can save five or seven years, uh, they just pay you for what you did. And it's a lot cheaper than them doing it. And they save all that time. Well, in some of the larger companies in the device field, they don't really, they're not really doing, um, you know, R and D in the stand from the standpoint of, of building new products in the dialysis industry, for example, and our product works on the infrastructure of dialysis machines. The big players in the dialysis industry are always, you know, trying to figure out how to increase their margin with by treating their dialysis patients, but they're not doing any R and D to create new products outside of that infrastructure. They but they will rely on the you know the R and D of other companies, especially if your device happens to fit on their global infrastructure of dialysis machines that are already in hospitals and clinics worldwide. That's that can be potentially attractive. You know, I wonder if part of the reason for that is that uh, if they have to do R and D, that's an ongoing expense. But if they just buy your company, that's a capital acquisition. You got and it. That's, <laughs> that's I, I, Joel. That's I think that's a very astute viewpoint because sometimes these companies can be they look immensely large. Um, and I, I'm referencing you know the, the players that are the global leader in the field. But if you really peeled back the layers and you looked at the margins they're working on, the margins are, are minimal. So for them, for them to operate uh, R and D efforts. Behind that, sometimes it's not just feasible. So, you know, the ability to acquire the work of somebody else that actually eliminated the risk and got the product across the goal, that's that's a much more attractive pathway. Listen, and it's a guaranteed deal. Yes. You know, think think nine out of 10 of these drugs don't don't ever pass anything, you know, so all that money gets wasted. There's it's the venture capital model. Nine out of 10 things fail and one wins and you make all your money on the one. It's got to be a lot of money to cover all the nine. So uh, that's sort of true. And probably in your business, maybe a little less than in pharma and some other businesses. Uh, But it kind of brings us back to where we started, which is uh, leading technical people. And maybe part of the reason these big companies don't want to operate R&D is because they don't like leading technical people because it's it's probably a lot harder than it looks. Well, it, yeah, it, it's not always easy. That's that's for sure. But, you know, you find over time, you do start finding like-minded people. 
and and you start finding people that actually want to work with you, uh, that you know that do see the vision, and and you know, and I think I don't want to sound you know too naive. I don't want to sound naive, but there is this sense of of a true belief that you can save lives. Um, well, you know, you know I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what I think it is. I, I think that that's the kind of thinking and that's the kind of culture that exists in very small companies or smaller companies. I think larger companies have a hard time uh, with that kind of vision, with that kind of culture. And so that's why, you know, I've, I've always been one that says that uh, small companies innovate, large companies operate. And, and, and that's just kind of how it works because little guys invent things, big companies are better at kind of running things and distributing things that are already made. And that's kind of how the ecosystem of big and small works together. So listen, we're always looking for the inside track on, on whatever it is and the inside track being the best, smartest and fastest way to get things done. And uh, you have, you have come through and shared the inside track on really how to work with technical people, how to work in a technical environment. Uh, and and I, I greatly appreciate it and enjoyed the conversation. Oh, thank you, Joel. It was nice to speak with you today. Well, listen, it was, it was great to have you on the show. So thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Autovita Studios. Profit from the Inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audivita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.